This is an ABC podcast. Hi, it's Natasha Mitchell on Science Friction with our Science Interrupted series where we've been taking an intimate look at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the lives and minds and hearts of scientists. This could potentially change the way we work for the rest of my life, for the rest of our lives. Today, it's the big PhD pause. You know, it's hard to see a future where this doesn't echo through. And I think it's okay to need to take a minute to adjust to that. But we also have these voices in our head, these voices of academia's toxic work culture telling us, you know, if we're not productive, we should just drop out. We're not worth it. Yeah, it's just, it's really conflicting. Across Australia, graduate students are always on tight deadlines to deliver a major work of original research. But now their all-important experiments are suspended or hanging on a precipice, locked out of their labs or unable to travel to their field research sites. Many have lost the part-time jobs that pay their rent or feed their families. And some are now also wondering what the future is for jobs in science in a post-pandemic world. Could this pandemic trigger Australia's next-gen brain drain? Something that most people don't realise about a PhD is that it's very isolating. Mm. You know, like, you're... I'm in an office with other people, for sure, but we're all working on very different things and very niche things. Yeah, it's really hard to, to not feel alone in this when you've got that initial, you know, stress, the initial problems that come with doing a PhD, and then you whack a pandemic on top of it, this is really uh, problematic for most of us. Being in a PhD, being so isolated in this line of research, which is, I guess, why we get into it. We want to be independent researchers. We want, we, it's our own body of work, you know. It's professional but it's personal and emotional it's this this thing that you devote basically you know three or more years of your life to and the the idea of more isolation i guess wasn't immediately overwhelming but as as the months have gone on it's been it's been quite difficult scientists get this we have this you know stereotype of being quite stoic and emotionally removed it comes from the idea that we the work that we do is at its core unbiased observations of the world around us. You can't let anything bias what you're observing or what you're experimenting on. Um, so in creating a dialogue around it being okay to tell people what you're feeling personally without letting go this old preconceived notion that you don't talk about your feelings as a scientist. Today, passionate young scientists open up. It is a well-established fact that one in two PhD students experience psychological distress and one in three are at risk of a common psychiatric disorder. The focus, the hours a PhD demands are damn hard at the best of times. But how are our postgrad students holding up in this pandemic? And what duty of care do Australian universities and the Australian government have to support them? Are they stepping up? 
this is really daunting. And so obviously now during this pandemic, when there's a lot of uncertainty facing our sector, mental health issues are just getting worse. Romana Raya-Begisevich is doing her PhD at Curtin University, investigating molecular mechanisms of aggressive pancreatic cancer to help develop more effective treatments. Like many students, her crucial lab experiments have been halted. But she also has the needs of the entire nation's postgrad students on her plate. As National President of the Council of Australian Postgraduate Associations, Kappa. And I cannot believe that I inherited the Kappa National President position during a global pandemic. I don't think in 40 years of Kappa existing there has ever been a pandemic like this. So. Doing a PhD is not like an undergrad degree. It's more like a, a job. It's the crucial foundation for your career in science. In fact, it's the stage when many Nobel Prize winners have done some of their key work. But this pandemic is already forcing grad students to make really tough, urgent choices. So some students have already withdrawn as a result. Some international students have already gone back home. Other students are persisting. Yeah, there's just no certainty on how long the situation will continue. We have a situation now where graduate research schools are looking at what's enough for a PhD. But every PhD student's circumstances are so different, depending on the project they're doing and where they're up to in the three and a half years they've got to finish it. Universities are really going to need to respond to this crisis case by case. So my name's Halo Roberts and I'm a third year PhD student at La Trobe University and I'm doing my PhD in our lab that focuses on onchocerciasis or river blindness, which is a neglected tropical disease caused by a parasitic worm. Basically, this illness is found in sub-Saharan Africa and it can lead to blindness in its worst kind of forms. Epilepsy, developmental delays, it's really a, a bad thing to have. Halo is genetically analysing samples of the parasitic worm taken from African communities to understand its evolution and spread. And we found the transmission radius is actually a lot larger than what the WHO had originally hypothesized. And so our analysis is kind of informing the carrying out of mass drug administration throughout Africa and all these areas to actually eradicate the worm or even control it. What has this pandemic done in terms of what you can and can't do now? I would have been sequencing more worms to um, get a bigger sample size for some of the analysis I want to publish. At least in the state of Victoria, we aren't able to go into our facilities and use our lab facilities. My university is very strict on this, so you have to prove that the work you're doing is absolutely essential and time sensitive. My work doesn't come under that umbrella. So I'm not able to access the lab and I'm not able to access my computer in the office. But I have my laptop at home with me, so I'm able to do some work on that. So right now I'm just combing through the data I already have and seeing what kind of story I can make with that data. I've half written a publication, which is you know pending more data now. Yeah, so I'm kind of just trying to fill time with whatever I can do that will be somewhat productive. But I wasn't the most 
affected by this. There are people who are running really long time course experiments with model animals who've had to, you know, euthanize all their animals and basically just pick up and uh, pack up and go in the middle of, you know, a three month course, which would have been terrible. So I'm trying to keep my inconvenience in context. Uh, my name is Madison Hoffman. I'm a PhD candidate at Edith Cowan University in the Centre for Marine Ecosystems Research in Perth, Western Australia. Um, and my PhD project that I have started last year and I'm in the midst of uh, revolves around trying to quantify and really determine what radioactivity might be left over in the Montebello Islands, which are a small group of islands that are about a thousand kilometres north of Perth and then a hundred kilometres west off the coast. In the 1950s, it was actually the home of the very first nuclear weapons test that was to happen in Australia, uh, and that was called Operation Hurricane. It was a plutonium fission bomb. And then there was some testing that happened in South Australia, which people might be more aware of, which was Maralinga. And then in 1956, they actually came back out to the Montebello Islands. And that was when they detonated the single largest nuclear weapon on Australian soil in our history. And that was called Operation Mosaic. Uh, and this was all done by the UK government at the time, actually. Now, you'd think we'd know by now how much radioactivity remains in the seabed sediment after those British nuclear tests. But while exposure risks to humans visiting the islands were considered in an earlier investigation, little to no attention has been in fact paid to the impact on other organisms, other species and the ecosystem. So in April, Madison was due to visit the Montebello Islands to collect samples to do that vital work. But then the pandemic hit, and so did nationwide travel restrictions. The idea of a June trip has now kind of been squashed. So now we're planning for August, and in this region it's beautiful and we can we can head out there and sample. But once it gets to November, that's actually cyclone season. Oh yeah, um, and no way. Yeah. Yeah, so Karatha is very all up in northwestern Australia. From November to January, it's basically like a no-go zone. You're not allowed out there. There'd be no point. It'd just be too dangerous. So we're operating in a, quite a, a smallish window of opportunity. And then it's kind of like, well, you know, people say just go next year. You know, then I'm two years into my degree and of three years yet to actually analyse anything. And it would just become a very, very rushed rushed year. You simply can't cram a PhD into a shorter period of time than we already do. Nobel Prize winning astronomer Professor Brian Schmidt, who's Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University ANU in Canberra. And like his staff and students, other than those working on urgent COVID-19 related research, he's off campus working from home. In his case, running an entire university. Uh, well, it's pretty full on. I somehow thought I was going to run out of things to do. And I seem to work nonstop 12 hours a day and then sort of fall into a heap on the floor at the end of it. 
Like all university leaders, he will have tough choices and challenges ahead. The federal government has announced a $19 billion relief package for universities to guarantee support for projected student enrolments, even if their numbers actually drop, as they no doubt will. But Romana Raya Begesevich, president of the Council of Postgraduate Associations, says when it comes to communicating how universities will support their postgrad students, it's been a mixed bag. Some universities are taking it as it comes and seeing how bad the situation will get before they offer any real support. Other universities, such as the ANU, have been a true standout by immediately offering extension of candidature to four years and funding to reflect that. And in some cases, if students still need an extra six months, they will look at these students on a case-by-case basis to perhaps extend their candidature to 4.5 years. I try to look to the eyes of my staff and my students. And, you know, I remember being a PhD student. And what am I looking for at that time? I'm looking for support and certainty that my institution is going to get me through the end of this. And so I can't just let my students hang. We have to find a way forward for them to complete their PhD and create a a piece of work that is really going to allow them to go off and do what it is they do for the rest of their life. I mean, this is the future research capacity, not just of Australia, but of our region and indeed parts of the world. The ANU is acknowledged as having acted more quickly and more clearly in their communications to students than some other universities. Can your university afford what you are offering? How do you go about budgeting for extra funding support for students during this uncertain shifting timeline of a pandemic? Some point as a leader, I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen. I just know this is something I have to do. And that means that By doing this, I'm making decisions not to do things in the future. I don't quite know what those things are, but nothing is any more important than this. Another welcome move comes from the University of Adelaide, which is offering up to 60 days leave at a stipend rate of 75% and COVID disruptions being accepted for a scholarship extension. So these, to me, would be a standout, whereas universities that aren't making any announcements at all just kind of not really helping the issue much, in my opinion. Although all is not well, it seems, at the University of Adelaide with the resignation of its Chancellor this week and the announcement of an ICAC investigation into its Vice-Chancellor, who is now on indefinite leave. Are there universities that really aren't reaching out to their students? I get the impression that most are communicating with their students in one shape or another. Most universities are communicating to some extent, what's happening. So we would encourage universities to actually be more transparent about the support that they are offering to students because we know through the Council of Australian Postgraduate Associations there are talks. However, we're not sure if this has been communicated to students. There's a lot of confusion still happening and uh, students are really, really stressed out at the moment. actually have had to have a few conversations with people higher up about my mental health and about how I may need some time off or something like this. And 
I don't know why, but there seems to be a miscommunication with how important mental health is, especially when doing the kind of work that a PhD requires. You know, it's kind of like being a carpenter or or a bricklayer and having a sprained wrist. So, like, you very much need that part of your body to be functioning at your job. And there's also uh, this idea that you should be able to, as researchers, just work from home to the same degree, you know, at 100%. Or for some people, they're even being expected to work at, like, 110%. You know, a lot of PhD students, they're not on massive salaries. They're on the, you know, $27,000 a year as the stipend which is enough to get by on, but, you know, you don't have big houses. You probably live with a couple of roommates. You don't might not have the luxury of a study and a separate space that you can make your professional working space. And just because you can work from home, this idea that, you know, you just do your papers, just keep publishing harder without accepting that, you know, there's been a lot lost without, you know, being able to, I guess, grieve uh, about all of these lost time for PhD students particularly and projects and funding that's probably going to disappear or promotions or classes and laboratories that you're not going to be able to teach that you've spent, you know, semesters and months leading up to. There have been uh, many tears. (laughs) The tears. Where do they come from? Oh, man, Um, all the time. (laughs) I think... For me, like my partner and I, we moved to WA to pursue this for me. So for us, there also came a decision like partway through, you know, like when they were starting to close the borders, do we move, you know, do we travel back to Queensland and try and be with our families? And also in this time, you know, we're supposed to get married. So then, you know, do we try and get back for the wedding and make that happen? And all of the personal factors, I think, um, for me, at least a lot of, the tears have come from having these um, big personal decisions kind of made for you. When were you due to get married? Uh, the 18th. Of April? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. That's rough, isn't it? Yeah, but, I mean, it's okay. You know, we both of us know the wedding will happen. It'll, it's just going to happen a bit later. The fun planning for a wedding had helped Madison sustain that longer, intense deadline of a PhD. She says her university has suggested students with projects affected by the pandemic should consider going part-time so they can draw out their scholarships or... There's been the option of just intermitting, which means pausing the scholarship and not doing any work. But what would you live on? Yeah, that's the question. I have chosen at this point to stay full-time because my partner is an undergraduate student who also works part-time. So paying our rent would be getting a little bit inconceivable unless you could find work uh, at this point, which is already difficult because there is no work, particularly in hospitality, where most postgraduate students would find their extra work or in labs, which are now no longer operating because the semester's or gone online or, you know, even commercial labs aren't functioning the same as they were a couple of months ago. Uh, For domestic students, I guess they could go on some sort of welfare. If we go part-time, obviously our scholarships are cut in half, but it also becomes taxed or taxable. I don't really understand why it isn't taxable when it's more money and then less money is, but okay. And if you were to go part-time, obviously your PhD would take double the time and it's like, 
It's a pro-con list that people need to write for themselves, I guess. We know that only around 33% of all research students commence their degrees with a stipend scholarship. Romana Rea-Begesevic, President of the Council of Australian Postgraduate Associations. That leaves the majority of research students who are self-funded and funding themselves throughout their programs. And, you know, even with a scholarship, it's only $500 a week. A lot of students still have to work to support themselves. My big concern is that these are some of the brightest people in Australia. Professor Brian Schmidt, Vice-Chancellor of the ANU. And they can shift out of research. They've sort of taken a little bit of a, a vow of, I won't say poverty, but I would say they're not getting the, the maximum market value of their, their skills uh, staying in research. And my worry is that research will simply lose our bright people that we need to contribute to the economy in the years coming. The Council of Australian Postgraduate Associations, CAPA, has been campaigning firmly for extensions to PhDs and scholarships disrupted by COVID-19 and for international student visas to be relaxed. And in the past week, the federal government's responded with support for universities to now extend PhD candidatures for up to four and a half years where deemed appropriate. But the ball is now in the university's court as to how they'll make those decisions. And CAPA says they want that to be a whole lot clearer. Like all students we've spoken to, Madison is really anxious about her future, but she's also deeply worried about the international students at her university and in her lab. Like many domestic students, they too have lost paid work in this pandemic, but they don't qualify for any of the federal government's crisis benefits, like the JobKeeper scheme. It's sad. They feel almost forgotten. Do they stop their research and go home to help their families recover or what's kind of going to break first? Are you going to be able to survive financially part-time? Are you going to be able to survive financially if you have to fully stop your scholarship if you want to preserve the integrity of your research? It becomes this really horrible, in my mind, in some of the worst cases, decision between preserving the research that you're dedicating your life to or surviving. My name is Erica Bruna Figueiredo Galvão, and I am a Brazilian-born, British-grown international student in Australia. I've just finished the first year of my PhD in physiology. Now, normally you would be in the lab. Where are you speaking to me from? I am currently on the floor of my wardrobe. <laughs> <sighs> the most soundproofed environment, hey? <laughs> Erica is one of the many grad students in Australia who have made that big move overseas, away from loved ones, to do a PhD here. She knew just one person before she arrived. I look at the role of the adaptive immune system in high blood pressure. There's a lot of evidence in the literature that suggests that inflammation is a contributing factor to high blood pressure. So I was using this one drug which gets rid of a particular cell in your immune system that normally produces antibodies. And I looked at whether this drug would help lower the blood pressure increases in mice who had or didn't have high blood pressure. That involves five solid days a week in the lab, and probably then some, the lab that she and her colleagues now can't access. 
I am at home. And yes, I can do reading and writing and maybe I can write a literature review, but I can't write a manuscript in my own work, which is more or less the currency scientists are based on. You just don't have enough data. I have an incomplete data set. I have parts of the puzzle, but not the full picture. I can't actually tell you whether or not my experiments worked because I haven't got the data to decide that, to analyse it. So she's stuck. And like the many grad students who Australian universities now rely on to deliver courses as casualised employees, she just lost her part-time contract teaching physiology this semester because of university cutbacks. Fortunately, she has a three and a half year PhD scholarship. It's below the minimum wage, but she can just pay her bills in the cheap share house she lives in with two nurses. One of them works in a hospital geriatric ward, the other is older and retired. So social distancing and infection control is a must for them. It's incredibly... um Difficult emotionally, I'd say. I oftentimes I do feel very isolated when I spend, I would say, ninety percent of my time in my room. And she's also feeling the distance of being so far away from home and family too. She's worried about her mum, especially, who is a physio in a hospital in the UK, where of course the pandemic is rife. Yeah, it's been ups and downs. Some days are better than others. Did you at any point consider returning to the UK when the opportunity to travel was still there? I did honestly think about it. One of my worries was if I did go to the UK, there is that risk of catching something in the journey and then transmitting that to my family, which I wouldn't want to do. I would then also go through a period of self-isolation. But what would happen if life here resumed while the UK was still in lockdown and I couldn't come back? Not to mention implications with my visas. I'm not even sure I'm allowed to do that. Erica says she's staying sane, doing lots of yoga and keeping in touch with her lab and local friends she's made here playing Aussie rules and doing jiu-jitsu. But when she looks to the horizon... There will come a point where without the rest of my data, I won't be able to move forward. And in that essence, I'm not sure what our plan will be. What is your supervisor... And the university advised at this point? So at this point in time, we've been told to keep track of the disruption to our studies. So what our plans would have been if COVID weren't in place and how much time we're losing so that when the university does reopen, that we can then apply for an extension. But that then also has implications with my visa because I'm an international student. So there is also a time period in that. So anything that gets pushed back also has to be informed to the government so that they can make adjustments if they need to. So uh, there's around 580,000 international students who face being stranded here with no money or income. Postgraduate representative and PhD student Romana Raya-Begisevich. International students make up a large proportion of enrolments and their fees make up over 20% of university income. So while COVID is slowing across Australia, its impact on tertiary education is intensifying. Yeah, international students have very specific issues to do with financial support, just not being able to pay their their bills, their rent, their food. 
um, not having any jobs. I mean, not being able to move back home, even if they wanted to. So all of these stresses are impacting on their studies. Some may assume that fee-paying overseas students studying at the postgrad level in Australia are, are very cashed up. To what extent is that in fact the case? That might be the case for international students who would have come here in their first year of study with some savings. But this support would also have been heavily reliant on their families back home who are also impacted by this, as well as job opportunities to sort of get them by that have also dried up. The assumption would be under normal circumstances, but these are no normal circumstances at all. Well, I think there is a social contract that Australia has with our international students. We've invited them here. They're onshore. ANU Vice-Chancellor Brian Schmidt wants to see more government support for international students, commensurate with some other countries. And places like Canada, the UK and New Zealand have included those uh, students as they have their own domestic students, as part of that social contract. The United States uh, hasn't done that. But I do think, from my perspective, the ethos of the Australia I've immigrated to is one that is very supportive of uh, the people it invites. But look, there is a bigger, scarier reality awaiting Australian universities and their finances as the bottom potentially falls out of the international student market because of the restrictions resulting from this pandemic. The extent to which international student support research is not widely understood. Romana Rayabigisevic again. International student fees are actually used to subsidise vital research. It's to do largely with government cuts to higher education and research funding. Universities have had to look outwards. So a decline in international student numbers is actually going to impact vital research as well. Some providers would need to take in several thousand extra home students to make up the lost revenue, which they just can't do because international student fees are you know, much higher than domestic student fees. So once that dries up, the research is going to be hanging by a thread and the sector and nation as we know it will be permanently transformed by this pandemic. For those who are worried, who are not yet under distress, my advice would be people like me are out there arguing on your behalf and I am very strongly of the view that we will find ways to support students going forward. For those students who uh, have fallen through the cracks and are under uh, distress, ask for help. Ask your supervisor for help. Ask your institution for help uh, because uh, you deserve it. But don't worry about the future. The future is bright, especially for our PhD students. They're going to have so many opportunities, and I realize it's not exactly what they may want to do, but they will have opportunities to go forth, do well, change the world in a positive way. There are huge challenges ahead for Australia's research community, but Halo, Madison and Erica, with the support of compassionate supervisors in their case, are still holding on to the enthusiasm that drew them to science in the first place. So I feel like a PhD is always testing in the way that you're going to leave it either loving science and the scientific process and research more, or you're going to leave it hating it and never wanting to look at it again. And this pandemic is kind of just amplifying that, I feel. But 
my love for infectious disease has very much grown during this pandemic. You know, this isn't the first pandemic that's going to hit us. It's probably not the worst one either. And we're going to need infectious disease scientists, probably for the entirety of the human race, because we are always in this arms race with all these infectious agents around us. And I think that's wonderfully terrifying. Although all of this negativity and this big question mark that, you know, hovers over my head most of the time, it's also really awesome and I'm grateful every day that I'm still really excited every day when I get up, even though I'm not travelling to uni, I'm travelling like 10 metres to my tiny study that's also our living room. I'm still excited every day to do what I do because, I mean, that's, I guess, the epitome of researchers. We're, we're always thinking about it. There's always a, you know, what if, what's next. And big thanks to Madison, Halo, Erica and Romana for sharing their experiences as PhD students. Our very best of luck to you. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or you can email me from the Science Friction website. I'd love to hear from you on this. Thank you to co-producer Jane Lee, studio engineer Brendan O'Neill and uh, to a special guest. You simply can't cram a PhD into a shorter period of time than we already do. Just don't mind me. This is the the working from home situation. I've got a puppy with a a squeaky ball. Let me just go and take it from her. Okay, no worries. All you can do is laugh. Sorry about that. No worries. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.